It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Harris Faulkner. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Janice Dean. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. I'm Evan Brown. For how much longer will Ukrainians fight? Will the West help? Why, some say it must keep going until one side decisively wins. It's going to be very hard to hold the Russians accountable unless they lose, which is another reason why the Ukrainians need to win so that accountability and thus atrocity prevention can be in our future. This is the Fox News Rundown War on Ukraine. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. If there's one thing people have been asking about with regards to Ukraine's repelling of Russian forces and the U.S. assistance offered, it's what's the end game? Could Ukraine defeat Russia? Will Russia overpower the Ukrainians? Russia certainly didn't make quick work of Ukraine, and because of that, we've heard accusations of atrocities. And now Russia is seeking cooperation with even more nefarious governments, like the rulers of Iran. Here are two pariah nations, uh, two nations that are under very severe sanctions from the West. William B. Taylor is a career U.S. diplomat, a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. He's now the vice president for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute for Peace, a federal entity that pursues diplomacy in hotspots around the world. The agency this week holds discussions on prevention and accountability of atrocities, a theme repeating itself in Russia's Ukraine invasion. But also this week, Vladimir Putin is meeting in Tehran with Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and Turkey's Recep Erdogan. And what good can come from this? For different reasons. Um, uh, And and Putin uh, is coming to to a place he hasn't traveled much. So he has uh, he he hasn't been able to get out very much uh, to test out ideas or talk to other people. Uh, And so who is he talking to? He's talking to the Iranians who are, as I say, under sanctions. They are cut off from the rest of the world. And. It sounds like President Putin uh, it needs some things. You know, he, maybe he needs drones. I mean, there's some indication from our intelligence and other sources that say that uh, uh, that the Iranians might provide the Russians with drones, maybe even armed drones. We know that the Russians have a lot of, of drones or have used a lot of drones. Right. But it's also interesting that they're now going to other nations like Iran to to. Uh, for for these drones, which suggests that the ability of the Russian military and industrial complex to uh, to to manufacture weapons is constrained, which is one of the purposes, one of the functions, one of the results of the very effective sanctions that the West has put on onto Russia. So the Russians and Iranians uh, have some things to talk about. Well, the Iranians have drones. We've we've. We, we know this. They've they have weaponized drones that they have farmed out to their terror syndicates in, in Yemen and in Iran, in Gaza. So that's 
It's not new to say that, well, Iran has these types of drones with these capabilities, but Iran is going to want something for those drones. I don't think they just simply happily turn them over. I guess the big fear is that Russia has Russia has nukes. <laughs> Iran covets nukes. Uh, is there a real scare or concern that Russia could easily make a trade like this? I mean, this is that that's a pretty scary thought. Russia, I think, up until today has at least been somewhat of a good steward of their nuclear weapons. And I would be surprised if they changed that, Evan. I would, um, yeah, as you say, the, the, this is the, these are these are two different domains, if you will, the nuclear yeah. domain and the drones. Or, or nuclear and conventional, more broadly. Um, and uh, so it doesn't seem like there would be room for swaps there. They've been, both, I guess, have been kicked out of the SWIFT system of interbank transfers, but the Russians have experienced something even more damaging, which is the G7, the biggest, the seven biggest nations, plus the EU, have frozen central bank reserves of Russia. The Russian central bank reserves, half of them, half of their 600 billion, it's a big, it's a big number. They've got a lot of reserves, but half of the 300 billion are in banks in the G7 nations. And, and they've all those, those uh, reserves, $300 billion worth, have been frozen. Um, so the Russians are in a strain or starting to feel the strain uh, of this kind of, this kind of effect. Well, let's talk about what you've written for the United States Institute for Peace's website. It's posted uh, just a few days ago, and you propose three different areas, if you will, to help Ukraine sustain itself to get to the point where they're willing to sit down with the Russians and say, OK, we will stop fighting you. I would like for you to go through these three areas one by one. One is military. One is financial. And the last is is political. You you propose that military efforts need to uh, keep up to a degree. So talk talk about your ideas, please, sir. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to. Uh, so uh, first of all, there are no American soldiers fighting in Ukraine, yeah. um, and the Ukrainians have not asked for that. And, True. And President Biden has been very clear that's not going to happen. Right. And that forty billion dollar package. Um, that's on top of a $14 billion. So it's $54 billion that has gotten bipartisan support in the Congress. House, Senate, Republicans, Democrats have been very supportive. And it's because the American people are supportive. And that's because Ukraine is fighting for us in some real sense. Ukraine is fighting against the Russians. And the Russians want that Ukrainian democracy to fail. We don't. Um, we know that if if uh, if Ukraine loses to Russia, which is what I'm arguing against, um, that the Russians then are in a position to threaten NATO allies, U.S. allies uh, will be threatened. So there's a lot at stake here. Nations don't want to see a world where big countries can invade little countries on their borders. They just don't want to see it. No one wants to live in that kind of a world. So there's been strong support for Ukraine. And that's why we are providing these weapons and on the, the weapons to, to uh, allow the Ukrainians to push the Russians back. We know the Russians have been pushed, but we know the Ukrainians have pushed the Russians back in the first part of the war. When the Russians tried to come down down the river towards right. the capital, Kiev, um, and the Ukrainians stopped them, not only stopped them, 
drove them back out. Embarrassed so them even. Yeah. Embarrassed them. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And and uh, uh, and so the Russians have now you know, shifted, shifted gears and they've downsized their uh, their goals. And the Ukrainians, if we provide them the weapons, not the soldiers, but if we provide them the weapons, they can push the Russians back out. It's hard. The Ukrainians have more to fight for. The Ukrainians have, you know, they're fighting for their land, their communities, their homes, their families. Right. Um, they're, they're, indeed, their freedom. Evan. They, they know what freedom's like for the past 30 years. They also know what being under Russian control or Soviet control is like for the past 400 years. And they like freedom better than 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 uh, that domination. Uh, but they have killed Ukrainians. We we remember we will remember that in the early 30s, Joe Stalin intentionally engineered a famine, intentionally starved four million Ukrainians to death by his policies. So the and Ukrainians have not forgotten that. The Ukrainians have not forgotten that. So that's why they're fighting for their for their lives and for their freedom. Let's talk about financial. We talked about the the dollar amount that we've spent uh, to to keep this up. More more dollars would probably have to be spent. Is there a a limit uh, that we're willing to go? Do we start leaning on European nations, other nations to say you got to pony up a bit more here? What's the what's the result of all this spending? Are we reaching our goals? Part of the answer is in what you said earlier. That is, there are other places uh, we're, we're going to have to play a lead role. I mean, the, the, let's let's be clear. The United States has to lead and we are the leader. We emerge as a leader from time when people around the world were wondering if we could lead, if we were willing to lead. And now with this Ukraine fight uh, that we are leading, let's be clear, um, it, the, this, the, the West would not be supporting Ukraine and, and opposing the Russian aggression so strongly if it weren't for the Americans. There's just no doubt about that. And the Americans have also made it clear, we've, the, our administration made it clear that the Europeans are going to have to step up um, and we're going to have to keep, you know, maintain that leadership and doing things, not just to say things, but doing things. Spending money, is, as you point out, as long as the American people see that Ukraine's worth supporting, as long as they're fighting hard for their for their freedom, then then we're likely to support them. I think we will. But there's also uh, $300 billion of Russian reserves uh, from their central bank um, that we that mentioned before that are available to support the Ukrainians. That's what better place to get money to support Ukraine than from the Russian central bank. And there's, there needs to be some work, legal work um, to, to be able to take that money and put it into a fund that supports Ukraine right away, right now, for their immediate needs, but also for their reconstruction needs. $300 billion goes a long way for, for doing that. We've been speaking with Ambassador William B. Taylor. He's a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. He is now a vice president for Russia and Europe at the United States Institute for Peace. Here on the Fox News Rundown, War on Ukraine. We'll have more with Ambassador Taylor straight ahead. Let's talk about the third point you make, and that is political. Part of rebuilding their government is going to be a political rebuilding. It may mean something constitutionally. It may mean something the way that their government operates so they can perhaps be better prepared in the future for existential threats. For someone who's actually you know, been in this line of work as long as you have, explain how this works. What would we do from that kind of perspective politically 
for the Ukrainians, both now, how to sustain their, continue their government, and afterwards? It's a very good question. You're exactly right. Uh, We do have a role, and it is, you're also right that it's different from the kind of role we tried to play in in, uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. Ukraine is a real solid nation. It's a de- it's a developing democracy, and you know it's had free and fair elections uh, uh, since its independence thirty years ago. And the and the uh, the president of Ukraine has switched from one side to the next, and back and forth, and back and forth. It's been it's been uh, different presidents are elected after each one. It's a real democracy. It's a real democracy. So so that part they've got. But you're right. They need there's still some development of their institutions of democracy. Um, And there, one of the big benefits, one of the big advantages that the Ukrainians have right now, in particular, compared to like Afghanistan and Iraq, but but compared to a lot of nations who are facing difficult challenges on reforming their government, their their governmental institutions, is the European Union has invited them to apply, invited the Ukrainians to apply for membership. But it's not so easy as just knocking on the door and submitting an application. No, Um, there are some major changes, some major reforms um, that the Ukrainians know they need to do uh, to develop their judicial system um, as a a prime example. Uh, In general, their whole rule of law uh, uh, environment, uh, system, regime needs to be strengthened. And until they do that, they will not be able to actually be a member of the European Union. So the Euro- being a member of the European Union is a big incentive for the Ukrainians. And being part of that market, being part of that travel zone, being part uh, of, uh, of, a, of an organization, of a culture, of a society that has high standards, has high, li- high living standards, but also has high standards for economics and financial and corporate governance and the whole business. That's a real incentive for the Ukrainians to give them the, 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 the goal uh, of making big changes uh, in how they govern themselves in order to get into the European, in order to be a European democracy on the same, same level. This is an important week at the United States Institute for Peace. There's a, a pretty big online event happening uh, uh, this week in which there is a, a true and I, I believe would be a very substantive discussion about preventing and responding to atrocities. Uh, we talked about uh, past atrocities in Ukraine uh, just a moment ago. Uh, there are certainly concerns and even confirmations of atrocities happening yet again at the hands of the Russian military. There have been accusations that Ukraine's military has responded in, in some similar fashion. Uh, but uh, I think it, it's a pretty easy thing to say that the world benefits when there are no atrocities. Uh, it, atrocities, on, on certainly on mass scales, are, are, have generational impacts. Uh, it, it leaves whole populations of people wandering aimlessly at times. What can USIP do? What, what would they like to talk about in this regard? It's a generational impact, exactly. Um, and, and I'll answer your question. But on the generational impact point, uh, I mentioned earlier this, uh, this uh, intentional famine. The Ukrainians call it holodomor, um, which means death by starvation yeah. uh, for four million Ukrainians. And, uh, uh, and Ukrainians today uh, will tell you about their grandparents who remember that horrible time 
Right. Death by starvation is is horrible. It's, it's, it's no a slow death. It. Yeah, it's a slow, horrible death. You're exactly right. I mean, they're, they're, the stories are just they're just gut wrenching. It's, it's terrible to even think about. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're right about the generational impact of that. And which is why when the Russians start talking about blockading ports so that Ukraine can't export grain, um, and causing famines in the rest of the world, the Ukrainians remember that. So this is something that, you know, again, uh, this is another reason that the, that the Ukrainians and a lot of people around the world are drawing back in just horror at the Russian atrocities. And, and you're, you're right about uh, that, that we've done some work and are doing some work on atrocity, both prevention, but also part of prevention is accountability for previous atrocities. And so, so that's why the international community, but Americans as well, are helping to investigate uh, these horrible deaths that we are that we've seen on on the screen that you all have shown that other na- other uh, networks have shown about how the russians have just killed civilian ukrainians um in cold blood in in in, in real sense you mentioned that there have been allegations that uh, that of examples on the other side on the ukrainian side and what the ukrainians need to do and what they are doing is responding to any of those allegations unlike the russians the Russians deny it. They say it was staged. They say it was a false flag. It was the Ukrainians really did it. Um, the, but the Ukrainians, on the other hand, are tracking down any reports of those of that kind of work. And that's what they need to do. If they want to join Europe, going back to the earlier point, if they want to be a part of the European Union, they need to have a rule of law that applies across the board to their their own soldiers. Um, and they're going to they're going to enforce that as well. So all to say that on atrocity prevention, we definitely need to have accountability and accountability. Then just on, on this point on, on Ukraine, it's going to be very hard to hold the Russians accountable unless they lose, um, which is another reason why the Ukrainians need to win, why the Ukrainians need to push the Russians back, why the Russians need to lose in this fight so that accountability and thus atrocity prevention uh, can can be in our future. Ambassador William B. Taylor, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, now the vice president for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Fox News Rundown War on Ukraine. Evan, thank you very much for having me. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.